the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And I have two points this morning, takeaways, if you will, that are in your bulletin already. And um, due to the nature of just how um, uh, much longer our service may go this morning, we'll see how much I can get through, or hopefully you pack the lunch. We'll see what happens. But I'm going to read our passage and just, uh, by, I kind of make mention of this before we, we read our passage each week, is if you, you want to kind of uh, harmonize this with the other accounts that we see in the other Gospels, uh, there's one other account uh, as it relates to the selection of the 12 apostles, and that's in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, and so you can go and read that uh, perhaps this afternoon or, you know, just compare, compare it with Mark's account here. But a Allow me to read these few verses, verses 13 to 19 of Mark chapter 3, and then I'll pray, and then we will, Lord willing, begin to work through the text together. The word of the Lord says this, and he, speaking of Christ, he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that they might send that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons Simon to whom he gave the name Peter James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boneras that is sons of thunder Andrew Philip Bartholomew Matthew Thomas James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer this morning together. God, we thank you for allowing us to just again gather this morning, God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit living in us, Lord, to see your word that you've preserved throughout all ages. Help us to see it. And in seeing it, help us to see the final word. Help us to see Christ. And Lord, may our response be one of deeper worship. And God, in return, we ask that you would strengthen our faith And Lord, as always, conform us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, for having been together, Lord, as a church family this morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've seen over the course of our our study through the Gospel of Mark already that Jesus, He's identified five disciples, right? We've seen that in the first few chapters. He's identified Simon Peter, He's identified Andrew, James, and John, and He's identified Matthew, the tax collector, who's also known as Levi. But based on what we see here, and based on the fact that at this point, in Christ's ministry, he has a, a tremendous uh, following, right? A following that, that couldn't fit inside of Peter's house, so a paralytic had to be lowered through the, the roof, and a following that's so great that last week, particularly in verse 9 of, of chapter 3 here in the Gospel of Mark, we, we saw that some, he and some of his disciples, they had to go into a boat to keep the following, the crowd, if you will, from crushing him, whatever, 
Whatever that means, right? So, so Jesus, just by good and necessary consequence through reading through this, he, he has more than just the five disciples that we have already been introduced to by name in previous chapters. But the five are specifically noted because these disciples would later become apostles. And that's what we see In our text this morning, we see the initial five disciples included in the list, and from there, we see the calling of seven more disciples. So, in total, out of the following, out of the the various people that are following Jesus, he particularly and initially calls out twelve, and it's those twelve that he designates as apostles, which are distinct from the other disciples. This is a calling that we're seeing to a particular office, and and it's a particular office that would cost almost every one of these men their very lives. And and this selection, it's it's an electing act, if you will, of, of our triune God. If we were to turn over to the Gospel of Luke, which is, again, the only other Gospel that captures this particular historical account, the selection of the twelve here, we would see that these twelve apostles are selected or elected from amongst all the other disciples after Christ spends all night communing with God through prayer. And and this is what Luke says about it. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, He says this, Now it came to pass in those days that he, speaking of Christ, he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called the disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve. So the fact he's calling the disciples to himself, there's more than twelve disciples, okay? And then from those he called to himself, he selected twelve whom he named apostles. Now, if we harmonize what we see in Luke with what we read here in Mark, we see that after Jesus spends all night in prayer, this is how the selection is made. Look at verse 13, okay? He went up on the mountain and he called to him, and this is critical, he called to himself, called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. All right, so we get this snapshot between both Mark and Luke of what led to the selection of these men. And what led to the selection of these men, it wasn't based on their character. It wasn't that these men had proved themselves to be faithful. We have to remember that amongst the twelve here, these twelve men, there's Judas Iscariot, right? That would betray Christ and deliver him into the hands of Christ's enemies. We have to remember that amongst the twelve here, there's, there's a man named Peter, that would desert Christ in the moment of his arrest, in his trial, in his execution, his crucifixion. So it it wasn't their character, and it wasn't because they proved themselves to be faithful, okay? It's not because they were faithful that Christ called them to himself and set them apart for the office of apostle. It also wasn't their abilities, right? It's not their abilities. These men were, they they weren't the, the bottom of the barrel dumb, like some people, I think, often characterize the twelve to be, but they weren't the type of men that, that were at the top of their class either. They, they weren't the type of men that you would expect to be so instrumental in helping to form and shape the church according to the will of God. This just wasn't a likely selection. And the point is, 
the, the, the selection of the twelve isn't, again, based on the twelve, but it was according to, when we're harmonizing both Mark and Luke together, it was according to the will and the purposes and the character of our triune God alone. Right? Our, our text says that Jesus called them, he called the twelve, because what? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. And someone like Judas Iscariot was named among the apostles not because Christ got it wrong. Because Christ doesn't make mistakes, right? We know that as a church. We confess that as a church. It's not because Christ got it wrong, right? And it wasn't because there was some accident that happened and he snuck in to the twelve, right? He was named amongst the twelve. He was named, I would submit to you, because his evil, his betrayal, his sin, that, that he alone is responsible for, that Judas Iscariot alone is responsible for, would be used by God to accomplish his eternal decree of crucifying Jesus for the sins of his people, for the redemption of his people, for ours, for yours, for, for my sins. Right? It, Isaiah prophesying about Christ said this very thing. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's a prophecy that God in Christ fulfilled and when it's brought about by the wicked intentions of men, not just Judas Iscariot, but the religious leaders of the day who we saw last week hatched a plan to crucify Jesus. This didn't take God by surprise. This wasn't outside the sovereign, capable hands of our triune God. The Lord used evil to accomplish good, right? We see Joseph say that very thing in Genesis chapter 50, right? As he stands before his brothers who had betrayed him, and he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. He meant it for good. So God in Christ chose the 12 apostles to advance that plan, okay? to advance the plan to redeem a people to himself. And God, in choosing the 12, he orchestrates things in such a way that, again, we see this Isaiah prophecy fulfilled. Now, now, who are, who are the twelve, right? We see them listed in this passage, and, and I'll harmonize this some with our Luke passage as well, and I'm just going to make some very brief comments just to familiarize you with some of these men because, because many of us perhaps don't know who the twelve apostles are, and they go by different names in, in different gospels. And so just, just to familiarize you with this, just a quick flyover, we see Simon Peter in our text, right? And he's probably one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known of the apostles. And it's Peter, as we, we've seen in our journey so far, where church tradition tells us Peter influenced uh, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, right? We've kind of noted that, that um, some historians, uh, consider, uh, early church fathers consider the Gospel of Mark Peter's memoirs. Um, it was Peter that confessed Christ as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. And again, according to Christian tradition, it was Peter who was crucified upside down under the rule of Emperor Nero, which is who's in power at the time uh, that John Mark penned this gospel. So we have Simon Peter in the list. We see James and John who are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. 
right? And, and, and they, along with Peter, were perhaps Christ's closest companions. And it was these three together that were witnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, which we'll discuss when we get to Mark chapter 9. The early church fathers make note of the nickname Sons of Thunder, and they use that as an opportunity to just highlight the powerful preaching ministry of these two brothers. And John, of course, here, he wrote several books that we have in the New Testament. And then we see Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter. And along with Peter, James, and John, they kind of constitute together the first four primary disciple or apostles, if you will. And then we see Philip, who was instrumental in Bartholomew's uh, conversion. Who Bartholomew, who, who we see in our list, also goes by Nathaniel, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But, but it's Philip that explains the prophecies of Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he vanishes. He just disappears. And then we have Bartholomew, who's believed to be Nathaniel, according to, to John chapter 1, verse 45, and John 21, 2. Uh, and Bartholomew is like, more than likely a, a family name. He was converted under the ministry of Philip and Eusebius, an early church father around uh, the years 260 to 340, said that he was responsible for taking the gospel to India. So we have Bartholomew, who's known as Nathaniel. Then we have Matthew, right, who we've looked at in some detail several weeks ago, who was the tax collector. He's also known as Levi, right? He's a shining example of just how far-reaching the gospel of God is, that there's no sinner that is beyond redemption, right? And he also wrote the gospel of Matthew. And then we have Thomas, who's famously known as what? Doubting Thomas, right? But, but Thomas also, a lesser known thing about him is he was also full of courage and devotion. He was willing to go with Christ so that he might die with Christ. You see that in John chapter 11, verse 16. It's Thomas that he touched the wounds of the resurrected Jesus and then he said of, of Christ, he, he, he declared Christ my Lord and my God. In John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. And then we see James, and this is the same James that wrote the book of James in the list. And then we see Thaddeus, he's also known in the Gospels as Lebius, which is a, a nickname, and he's known as Judas, not Iscariot, which is a close call, it sounds like. <clears throat> John chapter 14, verse 22, that's the way that John describes Thaddeus is Judas, not Iscariot, and he was known as Jude for short. And so some scholars believe he may have written the book of Jude and that he, this could be the Jude that is the half-brother of Jesus. And then you see Simon the Canaanite, which is also, he's also known as Simon the Zealot, okay? And the nickname the Zealot or Canaanite is really meant just to distinguish him, I think, from Simon Peter. But Christian tradition says that he may have uh, taken the gospel to uh, Egypt, Persia. And then you have Judas Iscariot, right? The imposter, the dis imposter disciple who was among them but was not really a part of the disciples. He betrayed Christ for money and he would, later, he would later seek to atone for his own sin through suicide. And so, so these are the 12. 
These are the 12 that, that we have here. And why, why spend so much time talking about their selection? Why try to familiarize yourself with these apostles, even if it's just a flyover? And the reason is this, and, and you, can, you can jot this down, or it's in the, the, your takeaways and your worship guide as well. The reason is this. God, in His infinite wisdom, He calls those who are weak and foolish according to worldly standards. God, in His infinite wisdom calls those who are weak and foolish according to worldly standards. And I'm lifting that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. If you want to flip over there with me, the Apostle Paul says this, writing to the church of Corinth. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. And we see that very thing modeled here. Right? God in Christ chose these 12 men, these, these very unlikely men. He called them out of stealing. Right? Some of them were given to anger. Some of them were cowards. Some of them were liars. One of them betrayed him. Right? None of them were model religious leaders of the day. Right? They, they weren't the obvious choices. And we see that pattern in Scripture, God's calling, God's choosing of those who, from a worldly perspective, aren't the obvious choice. And why is that? Why is that? Why does God do that? Right? The, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he answers that question in that passage I just read. Look back at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. God does it so that no flesh should glory in His presence. No flesh. None of us can glory about anything that we bring to the table in the presence of God. Isaiah 42, going back there, verse 8. The Lord through Isaiah says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Not only will the Lord not share His glory with idols, but He won't share His glory with any creature. Okay, Anything not God will not receive glory. Right? God, he, he chooses what's weak and foolish according to worldly standards, and He empowers with His strength according to His purposes. And this should encourage us as Christians in at least two different ways. The first way it should encourage us is if you're a Christian, as we saw last week, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. God in Christ chose you based on His good, merciful, gracious, unchanging character. Right? Your sin, your story, it's not outside of God's redemptive purposes. And this is good news for us this morning. Right? Your salvation isn't based on you being worthy to be redeemed. My salvation isn't based on me being worthy to be redeemed. Right? Me and you, we would be 
a fickle thing for God to base His salvation on, right? Right? If God has based His salvation on us, then there would be no certainty that we could even persevere in the faith. I change my mind from I can think one thing at 8 a.m. and by the end of the day, I think the complete opposite thing. We're fickle. We're fickle. Our salvation, it's based on God's character alone and He's graciously saved us based on Christ's merits alone, not our merits, not us. Right? It's a glorious reality that should drive our worship of our triune God. He alone receives all the glory for our salvation. And again, it should give us this confidence, this hope, not in ourselves, but in the Lord, that we will in fact persevere. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Isn't that encouraging this morning, Christians? All right, for those of you that perhaps aren't Christians this morning, it should be encouraging for you as well. There's no sin that disqualifies you from coming to Christ in faith because the shed blood of Christ is way more powerful and potent than your sin. You really can come to Christ. The second way it should encourage us this morning is selection based on God's character. After Jesus communed in prayer with Him, you should look at the selection of the twelve and we should be reminded that God will use you no matter your station in life. He'll use you no matter your story. No matter your story, right? We, we have in the selection of the apostles and... Example after example after example in the Old Testament, the Lord using very broken people to accomplish, and and sinful people to accomplish His his good redemptive purposes in the world. Think back to our series through Esther and just how wicked and dark everything was in Esther. Yet God, He preserved His people and He used very sinful, broken people to accomplish that preservation, to accomplish that good purpose. Every single one of us in this room this morning, we all come with baggage. We all come with sinful baggage. We all come come from various hurts as well. All of us have, have, have transgressed God's law. And oftentimes what we tend to do is take this sort of self-loathing bait, which is set by Satan, who we know, Revelation, the book of Revelation, calls him the accuser of the brethren. And this self-loathing bait that we often take goes something like this. Because of my past, I could never serve the Lord. I could never serve the Lord. Or maybe it's an equipping thing. I don't feel like I measure up to that task. Neither did the apostles when they heard of this thing called the Great Commission where they were told that they're going to evangelize people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they're looking around, and there's like, there's 12, there's 12 of us. And some just kind of died right out of the gate, right? Now, the problem with that way of thinking, if we find ourselves there constantly, is frankly that we think about ourselves too much. Right? We just think about ourselves too much. Right? God using you is based on His good sovereign character and choice. Right? He redeems you according to His good sovereign character and choice. And He's called you, or He's rather, He's authorized you as you walk in repentance and faith. He's called you to participate in this cosmic plan of redemption that will be successful because 
we're operating, as you guys hear me say this often, in the authority of Christ Jesus. That's verse 18 that's often missing out of the Great Commission. The authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore in light of that authority. And really, God could, he could choose to, have, to not use any of us, right? He, he doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. He's not a debtor to any man. Romans chapter 11 verse 35 says that. But He gives us this purpose. He doesn't just save us. He gives us purpose. And that purpose in life contributes to that larger plan of advancing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So this morning, I want you to think about where you are in life. Right? Perhaps you're, you're in your older, grayer years, like Doug Hazel. <clears throat> And you, and you think that, that your, your days of being productive right, for, for the kingdom of God are over. Right, that, that's not the case. That's not the case. Right? If that were the case, you would not be here. Right? The Lord has equipped you and He's called you for the purpose of propagating the gospel of God. Right? His purpose for you, your story and participating, again, in this beautiful cosmic plan, it's not over. It's not over. You're a college student. You're not, you're not waiting for your life to begin. You're in the midst of the story that God sovereignly designed for your life. And He's giving you opportunities to, to establish godly foundational habits that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. And he's, he's placed you on a college campus, which is a vast mission field where you have the opportunity to immerse yourself in four or five, six, depending how good of a student you are, years, right? But don't, wa don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your mission. Pay attention to where God's ha God has you. Mothers in, in the seemingly mundane things of life. Right? Cosmic spiritually significant things are happening in your home as you, your children see you love and nurture them as unto the Lord, as you shape these young, precious hearts that God has entrusted to you. Fathers, your faithful provision and gentle, clear-sighted shepherding of your wife and children, it's, it's a dim picture of Christ. Right? When you feel ill-equipped and you feel like you've blown it, even there... You find opportunities to demonstrate to your family that dad needs Christ. That is why they need Christ as well. Right? Bring your wife, bring your children to Christ Jesus. Be faithful, be steady. Though you don't see fruit now, you labor and you depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to produce fruit, to bring increase in His timing and in His way. Those of you married without kids... Right? Imaging Christ's relationship with the church is a daily calling. Right? God has saved you and you've made commitments before the Lord to testify about Christ's relationship with the church in the way in which you love each other. And for all of us, right? there's neighbors and there's friends and there's co-workers that God sovereignly places in our lives, in our paths all the time. And it's no mistake that you, a Christian... No unbelievers. It isn't a coincidence that you, a Christian, may cross paths with an unbeliever. God has saved you, and God has called you. 
And then quickly, the second thing that we see in our text this morning, and again, and we're scratching the surface here, but God in His infinite wisdom not only has called people based on His own good, sovereign character, and it seems foolish to worldly wisdom to have done so, but God in His infinite wisdom, He accomplishes His purpose through ordinary means that are weak and foolish according to worldly standards. All right, while according to worldly wisdom... Again, that selection of the twelve may have seemed foolish. There is, at the same time, a struggle to trust God's methods for changing the world. His methods for expanding the kingdom. His methods of evangelizing and converting people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Now, briefly, because I've covered this already and I can refer you to it if you'd like, but to be an apostle... You needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus. Paul called himself the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He was a later addition. He was appointed by the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. But the common thread that connects the apostles, and the reason we don't have apostles today is because apostles, they were appointed by Christ in his first advent. Okay, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They laid the foundation of the church. Okay, in other words, they were speaking, Thus saith the Lord Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay, Ephesians 2.20. They were building, you see as well in Ephesians 2.20, they were building this foundation from the cornerstone who is Christ. Now when the apostles died, their particular office died. In other words, we don't have apostles walking around today in the New Testament since of the world. And while there's much that we that could be said of that, for our purposes, I want us to see the priority given to them that is continuing, although in a in a slightly different format, and that's the ordinary task of preaching. Preaching. That word preach here, it means to publicly proclaim the gospel of God. Okay, the apostles' first task according to the gospel of Mark was preaching. And the other two tasks were healing. Right? The Lord gave the, the apostles the ability to lay hands on people and to heal them. We see that in various places in the New Testament. And we see that the Lord gave them the authority as well to cast out demons, to perform exorcisms. Okay? Now, both healings and exorcisms, they did real earthly good as they were pushing back on, on the, 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 the darkness and expanding the kingdom of light. But I want us to note the order of these roles because the order, the way that the Holy Spirit of God has ordered this matters. Both the gift of healing and the authoriz- authorization to perform exorcisms served to buttress, to, to support the preaching of the gospel. And Mark is the only one of the gospel writers that records this detail of preaching, healing, and casting out demons. And what I want us to see is that the very ordinary task of preaching was given priority, and it's the normative way that God expands His kingdom. And while it's ordinary, it's not an insignificant task. We know that the apostles, they picked up on preaching being a priority just by the way we see Christ prioritize it, as I've tried to note for us as we've journeyed through Mark, but how Christ prioritized it in His first advent, the way that we see conversions happen in the New Testament around public proclamation of the gospel, and the centrality of the preaching of the Word in the early church and all throughout church history. It's the preaching of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit ordinarily uses to expand Christ's kingdom. 
That doesn't mean that supplemental things aren't done to accomplish this or help advance God's redemptive plan, but it does mean that there's a main way, and it's preaching, it's heralding the good news, the proclamation of the gospel, and thus the whole counsel of God's Word that to an unbelieving world may seem ineffectual. And this is important for us to see because we can't adopt... We shouldn't adopt the mindset of the world and see the preaching of the gospel. The proclamation of God's Word is ineffectual, is inefficient, is a, some sort of fallback plan or some antiquated approach to evangelizing the nations. Now, there's many so-called strategies out there as it relates to the Great Commission. And while there can be, against different supplemental approaches we shouldn't see the supplemental approaches as primary, and we shouldn't engage with supplemental approaches out of a spirit of discontent with God's methods for reaching the nations. We want to be a church, Deer Park Fellowship, that practices what it is that we confess. And we're reminded this morning, overarchingly, that God's ways, His methods, aren't our ways that they run contrary to the wisdom of the age, right? God's ways, they're higher, they're better, they're richer, they're deeper, they're grander, and they're more potent than we could ever imagine. So we thank Him for saving us according to His grace and mercy. We thank Him for calling us to participate in His plan and His purpose, and we trust His methods We don't adopt the pragmatic approach to expanding God's kingdom. We trust His methods, like the preaching of His Word, as primary in the way in which He saves His people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, we thank You for this time that we've had together in Your Word. God, encourage us, Lord. Help us to remember, Lord, that our salvation isn't based on our own character, Lord. Your calling us and equipping us isn't based on our own character, but it's based on your character alone. And so, God, we thank you for that. And we thank you for inviting us to participate in your plan to reach the nations. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, before we do the Lord's Supper, we are going to do two baptisms. And, Jeff, I'll have you, if you can take them back there now. We are going to baptize uh, Abel Williams. And we're going to baptize my oldest son, Henry Tomlinson. And, um, and so, yeah, guys, if you want to follow Mr. Jeff. And so I just want to read you just a little bit about... Um, so the, the conversation with both Henry and both Abel as, as we sat down to talk to them about baptism went a whole lot like this. I'm, I'm trusting... I'm, I've been trusting in Jesus. Like I've been trusting in Jesus. I'm, wait, I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on you. Is is kind of both the 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 response of both uh, Henry and Abel. But as we we talked with them uh, just through the significance of baptism, uh, one one of the things that I was really encouraged by that just as as a note to to you guys, especially those of you that are parents, but doing the Lord's Supper every single week. Uh, while it is nurturing us as a church spiritually, and Christ is spiritually present with us, it's also an evangelistic call to our children who are not participating because they haven't been baptized. And so, um, so them connecting that baptism, baptism does not save you, which we know it's Christ alone, it's His merits alone that save you, but that baptism is the entry point into the visible church. And so they're coming this morning 
uh, saying they are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and, uh, and that they are identifying themselves as much as five- and six-year-olds can, can say this. They're identifying themselves with you guys as members of the body of Christ, and that is a very humbling thing that I'm grateful to the Lord for. And, um, and so, the, um, so, this, so we're going to baptize them in just a minute, but allow me just to read this, uh, our confession and what it says about baptism as it kind of summarizes and takes into account the whole counsel of God's Word as, it, as the statements are formulated here. Paragraph 1 and 2 of chapter 29, which is on baptism, says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And then paragraph 2, those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. And so, so Henry and Abel come this morning in front of their church family saying that they are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And, and, uh, and I want to be a father... And that encourages uh, that. Keep going in that, tra- uh, tra- um, that direction. And, and my encouragement just to all of us as parents is, is not to instill doubt in our children, um, but to celebrate and pay attention to the work that God in Christ is doing in their lives. It wasn't until Paul was at the end of his life, uh, he, he writes to young Timothy and tells uh, Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus, he says, I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived. And I think sometimes, uh, and this is the, the pit that we fall into in, in Baptist tradition, is that we expect our children to be able to feel and confess uh, what Paul feels and confesses at the end of his life. And so every person that comes and professes Christ, uh, they're at their most immature at that moment. And, uh, and our prayer is, is that they would grow in the gospel of grace and that our church family would um, surround uh, them. And well, this is my oldest son, uh, Henry Tomlinson, and he comes this morning uh, trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of his sins and to be baptized into the visible church this morning. And you guys can be seated. Henry? Are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. Okay. Well, you are my brother in Christ, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. This is Abel Williams, and Abel is coming this morning to identify with our church family and and be a part of Deer Park Fellowship, and he's coming saying that he is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins, and so Abel, are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. All right. You are my brother in Christ, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Two baptisms this morning. So it is fitting we do a Lord's Supper devotional about baptism so that we can remember the connection between the two. Both declare the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Both declare our union with Christ. Both proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. Both are sacraments given by our Lord Jesus and entrusted to the church to practice. And this morning we were reminded that baptism is a prerequisite to taking the Lord's Supper. Today will be Henry and Abel's first communion. Now baptism does not save you. Christ alone saves us. But baptism does signify that you are part of the visible covenant community. And only the visible covenant community takes the Lord's Supper. In other words, this is a meal for God's people. Baptism is the entryway, if you would, into the visible church. It is how you identify your life with Christ and your life with Christ's body. And the way in which Christ's body is expressed on this side of eternity is through, the rather, is through the regular gathering of particular congregations, such as this one, meaning the visible church. This is why your baptism is a corporate concern, meaning this is why we don't do baptisms in our bathtubs or privately. We do them corporately. We do them when the church is gathered. The local church is to be a witness of the one professing union with Christ, and thus union with Christ's body. The church should be able to look around and see her covenant community, and the external marker of covenant community is in the waters of baptism. You must be baptized. This is a prerequisite for this sacred meal. Your first sacrament or ordinance is baptism, and what follows is the Lord's Supper. So if you haven't been baptized, talk with one of your elders today. Identify yourself with the visible church made up of people of all ages and walks of life. And come along with your church family to feast on Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. <laughs> 